Hey everyone, this is Sam with Novel Discourse. A quick note about today's episode. You'll notice in the first five minutes of recording that there's some dips in volume. We were able to resolve that within the first few minutes of the recording. If you're new, we thank you for joining, and we can assure you that this is not the normal audio quality that we like to put forward. We're really excited about today's episode. This is a great conversation that we had about Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express, and we're really excited for you to join us. So thanks for listening, and without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. Welcome to the Novel Discourse Podcast, where we discuss great stories and how they're told. I'm Sam, as always, here with Andy. <laughs> you won't believe what just happened to me. I feel so dumb. Right before we started recording this, I, I got a knock at the door. And I, I'm the kind of person who, if you're knocking at my door in this day and age, instead of like calling me or whatever, like I just assume you're a solicitor. I just assume the worst, which I, I'm i starting to get my, to know my neighbors a little bit better. So it's it's getting better. I'm starting to open up to the possibility that somebody could be knocking my door and not be wanting something or trying to scam me. Somebody just knocked on the door. I open the door. I see somebody I don't recognize getting into their car. I see them like closing their trunk and then getting into their car. And I look around. I don't see anything on my porch. And I'm like, is this person like stealing something what do they call it porch pirate they were walking so slowly so monotonously and it's kind of awkward they kept looking at me and i was just staring at them from my front porch because i had no idea what to do do i like chase after them and we just keep staring at each other and they finally drive off and i as i'm going back into my house i look and there's a package by my feet <laughs> so that they're just like dude pick up your package <laughs> thank goodness you didn't like take that up a level dude no kidding I would have ended up on some on some Instagram video of just like, look at this male Karen going off on somebody who's just delivering them a package. So, <laughs> like, just like chase this man down, tackle him. Like, Who are you? I did get a really cool package today. Uh, by the way, it was a care package from a uh, Mister Gotelli. Uh, uh, no, not from Mister Gotelli. From Mister Gotelli's mother-in-law. She goes hard. She she individually labeled individual pieces of candy in that bag. It's wild as fuck. And she did like fifty or sixty of those boxes, dude. Bye. It's incredible. I emptied out the box and it just kept coming and coming. It's it's uh for the listeners. This is a care package for your baby shower for Andy's baby shower coming up. So it's uh and also shouts out to the people who didn't get that who are also listeners. That that very small sliver on the Venn diagram of <laughs> the people <laughs> the people who are close enough close enough with us to listen to this every week but then didn't get the invite. So it's great. And I it came at such a timely moment because wife and I are trying to get into summer shape as I referenced on the pod and our next grocery trip is going to be very it's very heart healthy as as Cheerios puts it. It's just it's gonna yeah. be straight down the middle, just like veggies, fish, things like that. So to get a care package that's just like only processed foods came in very clutch. Yeah, it's all like candy. I'm in the same boat, dude, because like obviously we got one and we have all this stuff for the party itself and I reverted back to my like very strict diet six days ago. I'm I'm already down I'm, I dropped that, you know, that really fun initial five pounds that makes you feel really good about yourself when you start dieting again because you're just no, no longer taking in bullshit at all times. I'm not far enough into the diet yet where it's easy. It still is really hard every day to break the addiction to like sugar and like carbs. Yeah, it's the same thing as getting into running where you get into running and it's, it is a total pain in the ass for like the first 10, 15, 20 days, depending on like where you live the time of year. Like if you get into running in the dead of winter, it just sucks ass for a long time yeah. whereas if you get into it like the late fall and it's 60 degrees and cool outside it's perfect but yeah i, I, I will do terrible in. things to avoid running i will do any kind of cardio i will do 
any random activity that involves anything to avoid running. I hate running. See, so see you say that, but running is, there's a reason that people get into running and then they, they are like, and I can say this cause I, I was in this category is like, they get skinny fat is because you're just doing one thing over and over again to your yeah. body and your body gets used to it. And also you're not really building as much muscle. You're just like, you're burning calories, but you're not putting on muscle to fight off building of fat. So Dude, I have a lot of friends that are strictly just run and it's the same thing. They're either bone skinny or they're bone skinny with a little bit of a gut or a little bit of a, you know, what, wherever they put on fat, essentially like everybody I'll has tell you, different I'll bodies. Tell you the, I'll tell you the day that I knew I was never going to be a runner. One time I was at Tim Massey's house, friend of the show, Tim Massey, and his brother was a big runner. And for Christmas in his stocking, he showed me this like package and it looked like two like silicone circles. And he's like, I got these. I was like, what are those? And he's like, they're nipple guards. I was like, what? You, what? Oh, yeah. He's like, yeah, when you run too much, your shirt can rub against your nipples and they'll bleed. So you can put these on. And, and I was like, yeah, running's not for me. I'm good <laughs> on that. Like, <laughs> that yeah. sounds, yeah. yeah, that's lit. Uh, good for y'all. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm sure picking up heavy objects and putting them down 10,000 times seems insane to other groups of people. So it's it's not a judgment by any means. It's just for me. We have, I have a totally zero nipple bleeding policy, just as a as a philosophical stance of mine. <laughs> that seems like a low hanging fruit. That seems like an obvious one. Um, man, I'll, I'll tell you what. Before we before we get into the story of the day, well, I guess I guess I have two stories because I have a murder in the Ori- on the Orient Express story, and then I've got my running story. I'm just gonna get into my running story. If you want to skip ahead three minutes, go ahead. Um, I did one half marathon before, and oh boy, was it a disaster. I did it with uh, three friends that used to run a lot, but didn't run much anymore. One guy that was huge into running, and then myself, who I was I was big into like playing basketball. I wasn't really into running, but I played basketball like three hours a day, so I had really good cardio. I was like, I can do a half marathon, whatever. And this is, I was 22, right? Um, this is back in, as we talked about last episode, this was back when I was eating nothing but like Taco Bell and pizza and then like playing basketball. Hell so. yeah we went out for drinks the night before which was the dumbest thing i've ever done <laughs> i was gonna say this is an unusual marathon routine compared to what i've heard other people do <laughs> it was it was not smart and uh i actually was doing really well for the first 13 miles of the 13.1 miles and at the very end in fact i passed all five of my friends except for one um and Literally, I could see the finish line, and I got one of those really bad cramps you see football players get or whatever, where they just like yeah. they're 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 doing fine, they're chilling, and then they just collapse and they hold yep. their leg, and you're like, "What is that?" And everybody's like, "Oh, it's a cramp." And it's like that's not a cramp. He looks like he's about to start crying. No, this was that. This was that deep cramp. And if you've never had this, swear to God, I looked down at my leg, and if you've ever seen the mummy with the scarabs that go in their body. Yeah. And like crawl around. That's what my calf looked like. My calf was vibrating to the point where I could see my muscle twitching. And Oof. it was nuts. Kid you not, somebody ran out from the crowd, gave me an energy drink, and I just downed it. They were like, this will help. And I, and it actually did. And I was able to walk nice. across the finish line. But it probably took five minutes off my time. Just me writhing in pain in front of like hundreds of people. So it was tight. Um yeah, murder on the Orient Express. Um, <laughs> man, I'll, I'll say this. Timely enough, I actually played Clue last night. Hell um, yeah! And Clue, I, I I forgot the rules, but if you ever played Clue, I think there's about eight different people that could have committed the murder. 
there's about eight different rooms that could have happened in, and there's like eight different murder weapons. And throughout the, I won't get into the whole details of exactly how it works, but essentially you are given uh, tidbits of knowledge as to like what didn't happen. So you'll find right. out throughout the game. It's like process the, of elimination. It, it's totally a process of elimination, but it happens in kind of a funny way, and you're kind of tasked with remembering and also looking for context clues as to like how somebody else reacts could give you a tip as to what to eliminate and what to not eliminate. So it's really involved. And in a way that's kind of how this mystery felt as murder on murder on the Orient express, where it's very detail oriented. It's not as I think in your face linear as like earlier this year we did. And the Da Vinci code was very much like, here's the problem there. An author's voice character, the female, uh, the young female whose name is escaping me would be like, I don't understand this. And the main character would be like, here's the issue. And then they move on. Right. It was like the star Wars new hope of murder of murder mysteries where it's like problem solution, move on to the next thing, problem solution, move on to the next thing. Whereas this was very much an intertwining web of like, okay, if this person was lying about that and then that happened then this must've happened. And anyways, it just goes nuts. Um, but I enjoyed it. What were your initial thoughts? Funnily enough, a little little inside baseball here. Uh, a couple weeks ago when we did Annihilation, I actually had misread our schedule and thought we were doing Murder on the Orient Express that day. Uh, and so I had actually, in, a, in the haste of trying to like cram this piece of media... I ended up like watching the 2017 movie, so I took in this this piece in a very weird format. I, I don't I don't make a big habit of like, you know, reading or watching multiple versions of the same story to see. You know what I mean? You don't get those iterations and those uh, permutations of the story. When I was reading it, I ended up drawing a diagram of the train car, which helped I me should've, significantly. I should have done that. I should have done that. That helped a ton. And then after, only after I drew that and spent 30 minutes doing that, I went to the Wikipedia page for the novel, and they have a nice diagram. I noticed that. <laughs> I just noticed that. So I was like, fuck me. So, yeah, this is like, I, I do think that this is a, uh, this as a, as a writer, I think this is an incredible, audacious task to take on incredibly complex narrative a shitload of characters all of whom are with they're never it's very rarely like a scene a prolonged scene is just two of them you know what i mean it's always like large groups of people they're always interacting you have to like keep track of not only what they're doing in this current kind of chamber drama situation where they're trapped on this train but also all their backstories and why someone would be acting like this and how they're related to one another from the world outside of the train, which we're not really privy to. It's incredibly fascinating. And in a way, we it, I thought it was cool that I felt like we were in the shoes of the detective because the detective is aware is he his his intelligence is such that he is aware of all the kind of omniscience that we are as a as an audience, right? We get novel information so we know more than a person sitting on this train would but the detective is so you know smart he's a world's greatest detective world famous detective he's capable of kind of parsing that so i felt like there was a very much a parallel between the audience's experience and the detective's experience leading up to the kind of at least into the climax and then overall i thought this was a really really good story i can totally see why this has been an incredibly difficult narrative to turn into anything else. Like, oh, 100%. none of the movie versions have done very well. 
and actually they've actually just moved on from this like they started doing his other stories because they're just like we cannot nail murder on the orient express it's just not happening it's not Um, gonna work yeah they ended up doing murder on the nile last year because yeah they just couldn't get this one right but uh yeah overall very enjoyable yeah, I haven't read Murder on the Nile, but I saw the movie just a week or two ago because it went on HBO, and I thought it was, I thought it was decent. I'm always a uh, Kenneth Branagh stand, so I thought his, you know, he he directs the both that movie as well as the 2017 version of of this film, Murder on the Orient Express, and he also stars as our main character. Uh, help me out here. It's a, uh, it's basically Hercules, but Hercule, Hercule, Her- yeah, Hercule Poirot, 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 Poirot. Yeah, Ross Perot. Poirot. P W A A dash R O W. Poirot. And there's a there's a lot of other names we're probably going to mispronounce. Um, some of the other style things that this that this reminded me of was we've talked about this on the show, but I love Death Note. And one of the things yeah. that Death Note does that you kind of have to suspend and push aside and be like, I'm okay with this. Is there will be things that are that will happen in front of you that you will have no chance to guess and the smart person in the room will will explain to you right um and again going back to da vinci code da vinci code did this thing where they would make it they would try to make it guessable but then they would make the answer not make any sense like they would say everybody knows that adam and eve (laughs) that eve ate an apple from the forbidden tree and that's the answer to the riddle and you're like that's not true right Whereas yeah, Death Note, yeah. they'll go out of their way to explain a detail that they didn't show on screen. And you're just like, okay, I guess I'm supposed to get that. And, and Perota, or Poirot, or however you say it, does that all the time in this. Poirot. Yeah, there is there is a million instances in this in this uh, story of them being like, well, naturally, I knew that you didn't pick that up. Because this was clearly scratched on the left side, meaning a left-handed person picked it up. And it's like, okay, well, we didn't know that, so fuck off. So there's a lot of that in this story. People have always loved that character, though. Whether it's Sherlock Holmes or it's or it's Poirot, even uh, move forward in time, guys like Monk. Characters like that that have this extra century level of perception that allows them to effectively have a superpower that has been very attractive to people. I think throughout written history, it's just really really cool. A couple of years ago, I watched Netflix did a they did a series version of the very famous French. Uh, folktale of Lupin, the famous thief. He's kind of like a classy thief. Which I thought was Lupin the Third, but live live action, and I was very disappointed when I got 30 minutes into it. <laughs> but uh, very similar, you know, he can like look at a museum and be like, well, the camera goes over there, so if you knock this trash can over and you, you know, blah, 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 blah. I think we love, we have an attraction to just culturally, across cultures even, incredibly observant humans the idea of being more observant than the average person and using that to solve problems or you know overcome adversity is is very interesting we talked about with clara it's cool to see that yeah oh exactly so i think that this character it's interesting to see this character you know this this was written in the uh like early to mid 1930s and it's just like another in a long line of you know world famous detectives you know batman effectively batman without the ass kicking there's this uh to wrap up my death note thought there's this uh there's this get done by what is supreme dreams group called those guys out of denton that have uh, like gotten the bag wor- lately uh world dream collective or world it's these guys that went to unt that make all these funny skits um you'd re- if you watch house of highlights on instagram or twitter you know what they are but they're they're pretty they're pretty recognizable but they have this skit where it's basically like after watching one episode of death note and this guy walks through a living room and he stops 
and he kind of looks around and he goes, you can come out now. And then this guy, <laughs> this guy stands up from behind the sofa and is like, how did you know I was there? And he was like, when the temperature is 72 degrees in this room, there is exactly 18 million molecules. I deducted by the by the density of the air that there was only 1,600 molecules, meaning that somebody had to have been behind this chair. And because the door was closed, it means that somebody has been here for, and it just like goes on and on. And it's totally unguessable, right? And that's kind of how Death Note operates. You're along for the ride. It doesn't give you a chance to guess the answer. You're just like, sure, whatever. But it's entertaining, right? Like, I love Death Note, and I like this, this book too, but it does not give you a chance to guess. Uh, we'll actually we'll get into that because I actually I actually felt like I understood a little bit of what happens at the end before it happened before it was revealed, but the intricacies of how they you know guess who did it and the clues and yeah. stuff they never give you a chance to guess it seemingly. The, just as a side note, this led me to quickly going over to RDC World's website, the Supreme Dream Guys website, and they have a section for their partners. Dude, I cannot imagine how successful these guys are. Their corporate partners are Funimation, Crunchyroll, Netflix, SeatGeek, Bleacher Report, the 2K brand, House of Highlights, Bandai Namco, Old Spice, Puma, Dreamville, and DraftKings. Gosh, that's so cool. That's yeah, half the that's brands awesome. that I enjoy. <laughs> well, and just that's like so it's great. all sh- it's it's clearly all shit that they really dig. They're super into anime and they have Funimation and Crunchyroll as like and like uh the main dude is super into j cole and they have a corporate sponsorship with dreamville that's cool as shit dude they have like absolutely accomplished their dreams and i'm so happy for them i'll never forget the first i'm sorry we're going off into this side tangent but i love these guys so much the first time i ever saw one of their videos that i was just like uh at the headquarters for video games and it's them having the meeting about making the next call of duty and they're just (laughs) like People don't want a new game. They want the same game over and over again with 20% of the content taken out, and then they want to pay for that separately. And then this guy's like, no, no, they don't want to do that. And they're like, oh, you don't know no games, dog. <laughs> like, it's so good. Dude, they have so many oh, good ones. Best. I think my, I mean, some of them are like very racially driven, but they're they're all black, so they can get away with it. But even repeating the jokes, I feel bad. But they've got the hood avatar was one of their original ones. Oh yeah, dude. <laughs> well, and they had they had the hood they had the hood Olympics where one of the uh, one of the events was instigating, and it was just some dudes playing basketball, and it's like here comes Mark, and Mark's walking out, they're like, oh, you gonna let him do you like that? All right, that's cool. And this whole <laughs> the whole event is just him like trying to get these guys to fight. It's so good. <laughs> It's so good. They're so funny. Um, oh, love it. Murder on the Orient Express. Yeah, so it's good, man. Is, uh, yeah, this is a this is originally like we mentioned. This is originally a novel written by Agatha Christie back in 1934. This is only a 256 page novel. So this is a for a, a written for the written form. This is pretty tight. You know what I mean? For yeah. the complexity of the story that's that's weaved here. Yeah, there's um, there's no description of anything. It's pretty much there in Istanbul. It reminds me of like stage direction almost, it where does. it's just like you don't have the room, and that, and that actually leads to certain elements where when a detail is given, you know it's important, like the description of the red kimono and things like yeah. that. You're like, okay, take note of this kind of thing. So yeah, just to like give you guys just the, uh, uh, I'll try to go through this. I think. We'll we'll do our best. This is an incredibly complex thing, and I think we could end up doing like an hour and a half of just point by point plot here. So we'll try to like yeah. generally do this in broad strokes. But our our hero is uh, Poirot, who's this world famous private detective. Which 
you know, the private detective character rose to prominence in uh, literature, both in England and the United States in the early 1900s. Um, someone who has taken their, their uh, they represent law and order, but they operate outside the system is very attractive yeah. to people. They're like, oh, this this is someone who's even beyond. They're above the corruption of the system. So like, they're like a cop, but uh, you know, not beholden to the corruption that cops are. So private detective characters, especially when you get to things like uh, L.A. Noir and things like that, L.A. Confidential type stories. These are incredibly attractive yeah. to people. It's like that chart that has the lawful good, lawful right. neutral, or whatever. What, what would he be? He'd kind of be like a lawful neutral. Like I don't even know law. Like. Yeah, I would say chaotic or something. I I I was going to say, I I think it'd be chaotic good because he doesn't operate within the the actual confines of the system. So he's, I don't know if he's actually lawful. The laws he operates by are his own. You know what I mean? Like he has his own. Now, obviously the reader is supposed to identify with that that set of ethics, right? We're all supposed to look to him and be like, okay, yeah, I, I agree with what this guy's doing. But certainly his... Him acting completely on his own volition and as an independent entity like creates uh, an element of chaos. So probably somewhere in the in the chaotic good uh, quadrant there. And so he is he has taken uh, and this tells you how long ago that this <laughs> this story was that he's taking the Taurus Express from Aleppo to Istanbul, which like man. Talk about uh, some places that probably do not have trains that run on time anymore. The Aleppo to Istanbul train route is probably not as cool as it once was. Um, Right. And so he arrives in Istanbul, which, dude, 1930s Istanbul probably slapped, dude. Like Ottoman Empire type beat. Like that shit was probably so tight. It was because the thing is, is, yeah, it was was probably the perfect amount of like it's – it was like truly foreign. It was a truly yeah. foreign culture. Oh, yeah. This is because this is like at the bridge of globalization. This is like right. There was a lot of the technologies were starting to spread around the world, but like you have to imagine that as different as Turkish culture is to American culture today, it was probably worlds different in nineteen twenty nineteen. Oh yeah, yeah. And I've heard uh, I've read a lot of books from the Cold War era that just that compare this era of Istanbul to like nineteen late nineteen forties nineteen fifties Beirut as being just this like truly international city and a city of spies like every it's at a crossroads in the world like every major intelligence service every like criminal working a yep. you know a scam every like shady businessman has some some finger in the Istanbul pie and so it's just like an entire town of like interesting characters and like people with shady pasts which obviously makes an incredible backdrop for this story so i think we i think we said before in the chat what is your like top 5 places and times in the world that you would want to live in if you couldn't live in if you couldn't live in like current time or what's your midnight in in paris scenario yeah it's yeah it's the midnight in paris scenario which by the way that 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 would be one of them right like get me get me in after world war one but well before world war two yeah yeah like ex expat era paris with like picasso and hemingway and yeah fuck yeah there's probably some like 60s or 70s LA or something that's really really dope that'd be super cool yeah like I can't I'd have to dig into it enough but probably like once upon a time in Hollywood era like summer of love deep counterculture LA was probably super fucking fire for sure yeah Uh, Allen Texas Allen Texas 2002 uh really banging uh yeah it's like right when they opened the blockbuster yeah they would just gotten Target at McDermott in '75. Shit slapped. Luby's was still open. Man, those are the golden days. Oh, Luby's was still open. So he takes this. Uh, he uh, 
Poirot takes this train from Aleppo to Istanbul and arriving at this incredibly cool hotel, he gets he has a telegram waiting for him that uh, prompts him to return to London. And so he books a here. He asks the concierge to book him a first class compartment on the world famous Orient Express leaving that night. So he's like in a hurry to get back to London. So unfortunately, the, the entire train is booked. And so he has to kind of like pull pull a favor here. Uh, one of his yeah. friends, a fellow Belgian, uh, Monsou Boss, the director of a large railway, gets him a second class cabin aboard this uh, aboard this train. And so he gets on, and we're introduced to this incredibly large and dense cast of characters. So these characters are the American widow Caroline Hubbard, English governess Mary Debenham. Swedish missionary Greta Olson, American businessman Samuel Ratchet, and his secretary slash translator Hector McQueen, uh, and he has an English valet named Edward Henry Masterman, uh, an Italian American car salesman <laughs> named Antonio Foscarelli, which just sounds like the so... the scummiest scumbag in all of New Jersey who wants to sell you a Honda that'll make it like. <laughs> 30 feet off the lot before it just collapses and then you turn around and the dealership's gone dude <laughs> like, they were they, they were sneak dissing italians this entire bro novel. italian they're, until like 1950 like it's just total open season on like these fucking wops like and i can say that as a catelli i'm allowed to to beef on italians but yeah dude every person in this novel is racist as hell every person is so <laughs> oh, yeah. racist that it's like literally okay <laughs> there is and it like an entire hinging point on this plot is the fact that every person in the in the train is like, oh yeah, this person got stabbed to death? Well, everybody knows that Italians, that's like their weapon of choice is to stab the fuck out of people. They, dude, <laughs> and, Italians, they and, do love to stab. <laughs> and and they're like, dude, this Sicily, the Sicilians, man, they'll murder you. Like that. That is a huge point of this whole novel, which yeah. I can't figure out if this is like, I, I, I truly am trying to figure out, and it looked like a lot of people on YouTube struggle with this as well, is like, is this Agatha Christie, her work not aging well, or was she making characters that were just, that she was she pointing out these people are racist, or was it built into the writing, the racism? And I, I, I think I will it was more the latter. I think it's definitely the latter. Uh, I can tell you that like when my family, my family arrived in America around this time. And uh, WAPs need not apply. Signs were in windows at businesses all over the place. Until the definition of whiteness grew to include Italians, Irish, things like that. Italians yeah. were kind of like the lowest of the low as far as people that were considered like non black. You have levels to racism, right? And Italians were like kind of the middle ground between kind of what what would be considered Anglo-white people, like Nordic-looking English white people, and then black people who were obviously treated like complete second-class citizens, if citizens at all. Right. So this is, I think that definitely, uh, this definitely applies. The interesting part about that dynamic is how those boundaries shift around certain groups in real time. So leading into World War II, uh, forever Jews were considered white. And you'd read, you can read like American pseudoscientific explanations of how like, oh, the Jews are so good with money. They must be white because they're smart. And then as soon as Jewish people begin immigrating to America in large numbers and setting up very successful businesses and taking business and jobs away from like traditional Americans, suddenly Jews are not white anymore. Then the Holocaust happens and America like wants to very quickly like get rid of any comparisons that can be made between it and 
the Nazis, because obviously mm-hmm. World War II really put into focus how shitty the Nazis were. And so then Jews became white again for a while. And now they kind of sit in this weird middle ground where it's like, I, I can't tell. You know, you wouldn't say you wouldn't just be like an Israeli is white, but they're not exactly a different thing. It's very strange. So this I think this novel does a good job displaying the, the attitudes of the era for sure. Sure. And, and like you said, it's it's fluid, but it's also fluid within groups even today. I listened to a uh, one of the YouTube reviews that I, I saw for this said, um, I think they were trying to take a shot at the novel and they were like, it's an all white cast. And it's like, man, to, to like paint a blanket brush over the cast of characters and be like, oh, they're all from the same group in like 1920s to act like Hungarians and Russians and British people yeah. and Americans were all from the same cloth. Did you did you finish the novel or did you read like well, the and, first five pages or what? Like, and that almost shows you how far we've come that all those people would even be considered white. It's It was similar to like a, a couple months ago, I saw this tweet. It was some asshole on Twitter was talking about football and he was like, no black quarterbacks can win Super Bowls. And someone was like, what about Russell Wilson? What about Patrick Mahomes? And he was like, they're both mixed, so they're white. And I was just sat there for a second and I was like, man, how far have we come? It used to be like a single ounce of blackness made you black. You know what I mean? Like it mixed people were not white, would never be considered white. And then suddenly now it's like, no, no, no. <laughs> like any any excuse to, to, to have white people claim someone like that's that's definitely a white guy. So it's very interesting how despite both of those those positions still being incredibly ignorant, they actually do display a measure of progress compared to like what someone in 1920 might have said about the situation where you'd be like, I won't sit next to a Russian. You know what I mean? Like very strange. Try to tell, go to like uh, Kosovo and try to tell them that like, Oh, them and Serbians are just a bunch of white. Them and the Bosnians are all just the same. Yeah. Y'all are just white people. Like like, Turks and Armenians. Oh, you're, you just, you're all a bunch of white people. Like, yeah, I'm sure yeah. That would fly. yeah, that'll go well. Yeah, that'll yeah. go super duper so, well. Um, yes. So yeah, so Italian American car salesman Antonio Poscarelli, uh, <laughs> he's just in the back eating chicken parmesan the whole time. So don't worry about him stabbing the shit out of people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just with this hidden that with the hidden blade that all Italians carry on themselves at all times. Um, Russian princess Natalia Dragomirov and her German maid uh, Hildegard Schmidt. Hungarian Count Rudolf Andranier and his wife Elena, English Colonel John Arbuthnot, and American salesman Cyrus B. Hardman, along with Greek medical doctor Stavros Constantine. So this is like a very well-to-do cabin, dude. Everyone here is either like actual royalty, landed gentry, or like the, within their respective countries, the most respected I guess, trades. So like in America at this time, America in the 30s was considered like the most pragmatic, the most economic nation. And so our our representatives are like salesmen and businessmen. And yeah. the, the British have sent like officers, you know what I mean? Like these kind of landed kind of noble officer guys. The Greeks have sent a doctor. Like these are all very much like in line with how those cultures would say that's our best and brightest, which is very interesting. Yeah. One thing that I thought was interesting was I, I always thought reading, um, we, we talked to this pod about Dan Carlin, the goat and his, uh, world war one podcast series, blue blueprint for Armageddon. So and fucking good. So good. 
if it you know what if you haven't heard it just drop our podcast and go listen to that cause it's, it's <laughs> yeah we will not awesome. be offended if you turn this off to listen to blueprint for armageddon i couldn't yeah, blame not you at that. all uh he has those writings that talk about how the british and german soldiers thought about americans and i've always thought that like 1920s 1930s america because it wasn't truly a superpower yet it was viewed as kind of this uh frontier a lot of frontiersmen yeah, up and it was like for sure it was definitely an up-and-comer and it was interesting to me that the attributes that was given to the American woman in this were like kind of modern, like what we think of like in a modern American tourist yeah. in Europe, just like loud as hell, shitty. loud, yeah. and just like complaining about everything. And I just was like, man, it's funny because again, Agatha Christie actually grew up in the era. So who am I to like say, no, that's right. not how Americans were back then. But there's part of me that's like, is that really how Americans were? Or is that like her attributing probably how british people were back then <laughs> and like well and i, I the think Americans. that there's a there's a degree of like one thing that i think allowed america to thrive especially as we entered the 18th and 19th centuries and then eventually the 20th century was that american society was not held to this weird hierarchy of the old landed nobility system like in england everyone had a station you stayed in your station your whole life there really was no moving up or down maybe through military glory or something like that but like for the most part if you were born in the third class cabin you might get a better seat but you were going to be in the third class cabin when you died and in america like we were not held to those sensibilities and so americans did not show i think from the beginning did not show deference to, like, you know, someone just because they're the 19th Earl of Nottinghamshire, we would just be like, all right, you know, whatever. <laughs> like that's yeah. That was kind of the attitude. And I think that the British looked down their nose at that while their empire collapsed, and the Americans, like, that attitude allowed them to do business with the whole world, which was a huge advantage to them as the world moved from, like, who's got the, you know, the most kings to... Who, who can do the most trade. And America was very, very well set up to exploit that kind of system. Yeah. So whether or not the stereotype was was uh, largely warranted in the 1930s of just the American being annoying as hell, whether it's true or not, that's another one than the stereotype that they went completely all in on. The American in the story, or the American female, I should say, was just so annoying. Dude, 100% agreed. So all these characters are in, are, are introduced if you want to, if, if you're a listener and you want to go on the Wikipedia page, they have this very nice uh, diagram of the car and all the cabins. So you can see like where everyone is is sitting, which is very handy uh, actually, it because is. a lot of this beca- turns into like a discussion of like location and like who would have had the opportunity to do X, who moved through what cabin to go where. And so as soon as they enter the the train and they kind of begin settling, uh, and at this point I kind of had a lot of sympathy for Poirot because he's he's like. He just took this long-ass train ride from Aleppo to Istanbul. He was trying to bed down at this hotel, and he finds out he has immediately got to get on a different train. He tries to book a first-class cabin, assuming so that he can, like, sleep, you know, be left alone, private cabin, sleep. Instead, he gets booked in the second-class cabin. As soon as he gets on the train, he's approached by the American businessman, Ratchet, who's, like, kind of shoving this huge plot in his lap. And he's probably just like, God damn it, dude, I'm not trying to do detective shit right now. Yeah. And it's funny because that's actually, like, a subplot of the the 2017 film was... I I heard somebody say that in no other Agatha Christie novels, especially this novel, and then the, the movie and the television versions that came before the Kenneth Branagh version, but the Kenneth Branagh version 
it's all about him just being tired as fuck the whole time. It, like yeah, he's an yeah. old, he's like an old man that's like, oh, I don't want to do this. What is the Danny Glover line? I'm getting too old for this shit. I'm getting too like, old for this shit. Yeah, yeah. But in in the novel and then in the other renditions that come after it, that's not the case. He's just he doesn't want to take on Ratchet's challenge because he says <laughs> because he says he doesn't like his face, which yeah. is just God. The amount of shade that Agatha Christie throws out in this novel is so funny. Like he he literally says, I don't like your face. And yeah, that's he's, re- he's repulsed by him. So, yeah, yeah. Ratchet uh, approaches Poirot and basically asks him for protection because he's received death threats. And Poirot is repulsed by his face and so says, nah, and refuses the case. So Boos, uh, who is the fellow Belgian who helped get him his cabin on this train, uh, has taken the last first-class cabin, but arranges to be moved to a separate coach and gives Poirot his space. So Poirot gets his you know, nice first-class digs on this train, and they are off uh, on their journey, hopefully headed towards London. And so we move to the first night on the train where Poirot, with his, like, you know, exceptional powers of observation, begins to see some strange occurrences. First, he hears this cry from Ratchet's compartment next door, and the conductor comes down and knocks on the door, but a voice inside says in French, "'It's nothing, I was mistaken.'" Hubbard rings her bell and tells the conductor that a man passed through her room. Uh, And when Poirot rings the bell for water, the conductor informs him that the train is stuck in a snowdrift between, you know, two places in, uh, I think like Slovenia is where they end up getting caught. Okay, yeah. Modern Yugoslavia, or then Yugoslavia, now like Slovenia, blah, 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 blah. Sure. The Baltic states. Shout out Luka. Hell yeah. The goat. Uh and then he hears they get stuck. He gets informed of that, and he hears this loud thump next door. So he looks, uh, he looks out his door, and he sees a woman in a red kimono rushing towards the washroom. And he's like, "Oh shit!" But doesn't investigate. Goes to sleep. He's like, "That's um, weird. That's that's mad weird." So the next morning, the train's still stuck, and Boos informs Poirot that Ratchet, the guy who had asked Poirot for protection, has been murdered. And that the murderer is still aboard because you can't get off this train. Like, they're stuck in this, like, neck-deep snow. There's nowhere to go. Like, whoever yeah. killed this guy is on this train. They make it sound like in the novel I'd read, again, they're, they don't they don't describe a crazy amount of time. They don't spend a, a lot of time doing a lot of prose. But they mentioned in passing that there's snow on either side. And now in, in, the, in, the, in all of the, uh, I, I almost called it the video versions, but, but in all the movies and the television it's not really the case. They're just kind of stuck, but then they can like yeah. open their windows and they can walk outside and stuff. But in this novel, it makes it sound like that they are literally like compacted inside, cannot leave the cabin. Yeah. I think she wanted to use this as the plot device by which to confine all the characters within the train. You know what I mean? Like that. So it couldn't be that anyone just slipped out and ran into the woods. Cause you might do that if you murdered somebody that's serious enough to like take your chances in the sure, wilderness. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. Yeah. In the novel, they're all stuck. No one's going anywhere since there's no, there's no cops on this train at all. Uh, which is that part did strike me as a little weird that like, there's all these like Royal people and like high, you know, value business people on this train. And like, none of them have bodyguards. None of them have any like close protection. I guess maybe that wasn't that common back then because public assassination wasn't as common in the early 1930s. Yeah. Again, again, kind of goes back to plot device. You just have to give her kind of right. Yeah. I mean, there, cause she, cause they, they very clearly state that like in, 
in Yugoslavia, they don't have, like, nobody jumps on the train. No police officers jump on the train in Yugoslavia for the Orient Express. Which, again, if you want to be nitpicky, which I'm not doing this, but, like, if you want to be nitpicky, you can point out, like, this is an incredibly nice train. The murder, the, the Orient Express is, is, was a real train that was very bougie, as you can tell by the clientele in this fictional novel. But, like, their mobile certainly in real life would have been a lot of security. But, anyways, continue. Yeah, so since there's no cops on board, Poirot is kind of like the only guy with the skills. So he takes up the case. So he takes Stavros, the doctor, the Greek doctor, and they go in and they examine Ratchet's body in his compartment. And the body has 12 stab wounds. The window's been left open. There's a handkerchief with the initial H. There's a pipe cleaner, a flat match, different from the ones Ratchet used because he, he was a smoker, and a charred piece of paper with member Daisy Armstrong written on it. This piece of paper is, like, super key to Poirot working out the motive of the murderers. Uh, it turns out that many years ago, American gangster Len Franco Cassetti, uh, another, uh, you know, nefarious Italian, rears his ugly <laughs> Those head Italians in this stabbing, man. Yeah. Uh, he kidnapped the three-year-old Daisy Armstrong. Uh, Cassetti collected a significant ransom from the wealthy Armstrong family weeks later and then revealed he had killed the child within one hour of kidnapping her. So this is cl- very clearly a, I'm not going to call it an homage, but it's a reference to the Lindbergh baby. So incredibly high-profile kidnapping with a huge ransom paid and the child ends up dead. Um, so th- this is, I think, very much in parallel to that because that story gripped the entire world. Sonia Armstrong, Daisy's mother, uh, who was pregnant with her second child upon hearing the news, went into premature labor and died along with the baby. And her grieving husband, Colonel Armstrong, shot himself. Daisy's French nursemaid, Susan, was accused of aiding Cassetti and committed suicide, only to be found innocent afterwards. Cassetti escaped justice through corruption and legal technicalities and fled the country. So again, we're showing this theme of like, the the real cops can't do this job. You know what I mean? Like they are there. The system is subject to corruption, bribery, technical legal, legal, like legal yeah. technicalities are like a beloved plot device of like the downtrodden folk in any story. It's like, yeah, we saw him shoot a guy, but it was a Wednesday and the law says you shoot a guy on a Wednesday, you get to walk. <laughs> like it's always how yeah, it works. And, so, and those damn Sicilians and their corruption, dude, they're, they're, they're sneaky. They can't be trusted, dude. So Poirot uh, concludes that Ratchet is actually Cassetti. So he was in disguise this whole time. Uh, Ratchet was his his alias. And whoever said uh, it, it is nothing, it was a mistake uh, from the car that night that, that the conductor tre- checked on them, that was not Ratchet because Ratchet did not speak French. So the, the book from here goes into this series of interviews. So he interviews everyone on the train. So he, d- he discovers that McQueen is directly involved as he knows about the Armstrong note and believed it was destroyed and that Hubbard believes the murderer was in her cabin. Um, so when she said, you know, there was a man in my cabin, she thinks that was the murderer. Um, while the passengers and Pierre all provide suitable allies, alibis for each other, Poirot notes that some of them observed the woman in the red kimono walking down the hallway on the night of the murder, but no one admits to own, there's no kimono. Like, that's just kind of one of his things. He's looking for whoever's got this kimono. I got to talk to them. He can't find the kimono. 
why can't he find the red kimono? And I'm asking from a perspective of, I read this novel super fast. Just a little, yeah. a little reveal under the hood. I read this novel in like two days, and I might have missed that. So was there a reason? What Did he say why he wasn't able to find the red kimono? I was actually going to ask you the same thing, because I, I thought I, I too had missed that detail. Uh, it, whether it was stashed in a place we couldn't find it, or... From a writing perspective, it's not bad to be like, oh, he never found the red kimono. But they do a bag check later, and that's why I'm kind of like, yeah, that'd be yeah. my first question is like, who has that kimono? But anyways, continue. Oh, oh, wait. Okay, wait, no. I do remember this now. They do find the red kimono. It's in Poirot's own luggage. They find it in well, they, his well, bag. Well, no, they find it on top of his stuff when he's interviewing people. Like somebody placed okay. it there. So Got I'm it, just curious as to like, did he go look and then not able to find it? I don't, I don't remember. Where was I here in my summary? Okay, so he has Olsen lock the communicating door between her compartment and Cassetti's, which invalidates her story of the man in her compartment. So no one could have walked through her cabin effectively because the door Got between it. her cabin and Cassetti's slash ratchets was locked. Schmidt bumped into a stranger wearing one of the rail lines uniforms Miss Debenbaum inadvertently revealed that she has been to America, contrary to her earlier statements. She says she's, you know, this British woman. She's never been abroad, blah, blah, blah. And Olsen shows a ton of emotion when the subject of Daisy is brought up, causing further suspicion. So what he's kind of confronted with is this large group of people that seemingly are all strangers. But as time goes on, he asks more questions. They all seemingly have some either details they've hidden from him initially or ties to one another. And many of them have ties directly to the Armstrong murder, Uh, whether it's like a vested interest in catching the killer, seeing justice for that, et cetera. That is about the time. And this is probably two thirds through the book where I was like, yeah, it's definitely multiple killers. Maybe it's like eight of them. I, 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 again, I, I couldn't, I'm not going to sit here and say that I, I picked out, everybody or like the correct answer a hundred percent but that was about the time where i was like it has to be a lot of people because for you to pick up on a train in istanbul and there to be a murder in the united states and there to be that many connections to that one family yeah, is uh super very weird. strange now it'd be it would be a little bit different if it was a murder that happened within a specific network an industry or like a world leader and then it's like a a train that carries just those people. But this, that's different. This is like, this is a the public only, the train only thing that's carrying yeah, all those people. The only thing I'll say is, and again, I'm I'm drawing a lot of parallels here between this and the Lindbergh murder. Charles Lindbergh was world famous and had met almost every head of state when he did his like transit, you know, the first transatlantic flight on the Spirit of St. Louis, blah, blah, blah. He would have known a bunch of people like this if the Armstrongs are the stand-ins for the Lindberghs in this case. Like they would have personal friendships with the Armstrongs if that is really the stand-in. But since they don't right. illuminate that at all, yeah, it, it stands to be a little more suspicious. Another thing that I wanted to point out is like a point that made me suspicious around this two thirds mark that is um is maybe of interest and maybe maybe I was the only one, but have we gotten we haven't really gotten into the interrogations too much yet, have we? Well we kinda glossed over the interrogations, right? Where they're acting yeah, kind of suspicious. I, I, yeah, I stuff. was I was more I was more just like uh categorizing them as interviews and then revealing kind of what he found out as he went through. Right. So just for just for people who maybe haven't read this novel and have just watched the movies, this story is broken up to like the first four or five chapters set up everything, um, probably about the first 90 pages and the murder happens. And then I would say 60% of the book is every, it's like a bit by bit chapter of just 
Perot interviewing the different people that were on the train, right? And then you learn different yep. stuff. And in the last few chapters, if there's like a summary of the evidence, and then there's like a summary of what they find in each cabin, and then Perot, and then again, we're probably mispronouncing his name. I keep calling him Perot <laughs> because of Ross Poir- Perot. Yeah, it's Poirot. Poirot. Uh, if, who knows? We're probably still saying it wrong, but Poirot. But that's what the. That's how the pronunciation guide says to say it. On Google, gosh, you Google stand. How dare you? How dare you yeah. insult Google? That will cost You're you your life. Such a loyal employee. What do you use, Bing, Sam? You a big Bing guy? I, I'm more of an Axe Jeeves guy, actually. Yeah, I'm going to find out that it's powered by Google search engine. Remember when you had to like phrase queries to ask Jeeves in the form of a question? That was very confusing yeah. to me as a child. It's like cool and gimmicky, but yeah, yeah it wasn't good not very for, like, useful. We didn't understand how how important search engines were going to be at the time, so like it was funny to make it be like that. But that now, if it was like, no, I need to like figure out if my cat's dying. Like, hey Jeeves, is it bad when your cat does you know X? Yeah. Like that'd be really shitty. <laughs> this isn't Jeopardy. Come on, man. I can't sit there and be like, what song goes dun 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 on Jeeves? <laughs> oh. Exactly. Um. You can hum oh, yeah. Google now. Really? Yeah, you can just hum into the microphone. And it'll be like, oh, that's, you know, Day and Night by Kid Cudi. It's crazy. I mean, but everybody knows that song. Well, yes, but I was just giving an easy example. But you can hum okay. the, the basic melody to almost any song, and it'll recognize it. But it's I don't want to give China my voice. You're giving Google your voice. We're much more malevolent than China. Okay, that makes sense. That explains why they hired you. <laughs> um anyways where are we at um the interviews yeah one thing i was gonna say about this was when he's doing all the interviews pro is always like do you remember the what do they call it not the lindenberg the, the murders the main armstrong Armstrong murder yeah it's like do you remember the armstrong kidnapping or do you remember the armstrong murder and they all say yeah i vaguely remember that or like yeah i, I totally remember that who didn't but none of them recognized the guy that got off on murder that was on their train. And that that was another thing that I guess tipped me off. And I guess if I'm going to give – remember how earlier I said like Agatha Christie's kind of like Death Note. They don't give you a lot of like hints as to like what the answer is. To me, that was one of the small hints is like, man, all these people remember the case. They all remember the murder. They all remember seeing it on on the news or the news clippings, I guess, or the newspapers. And, and this novel establishes that – this guy is like known to be the guy that the guy that was involved, but then got off. Right. Am I, am I yeah, I'm correct in yeah, saying that? For right? sure. Yep. So it's one sure. of those things where like they all remembered it, but then none of the 12 or so people like remembered that the, the big, the big turning point, which like in today's society, we would all remember the guy who was alleged to have done it and then got away. That, that would be like the most memorable thing. Yeah, I, I think we also have to remember that this is a time where no one sees video. You see, like, very grainy, shitty pictures of things. If this guy grew a mustache, you might not recognize him. You know what I mean? If he wore a different sure. hat. Like, that's just the nature of... And Now, people people who are members of the Armstrong family, absolutely. Like, they right. they know him, for sure. Um, but if you were, like, some European who heard about the trial via the wire service, I could totally see you not recognizing him at a glance you know what i mean yeah and maybe that's something where i have an advantage over people who probably read this work right when it came out in the 30s for sure is like my brain is going towards how would you not recognize the guy whereas to your point a lot of these people probably read it in newspapers without pictures or maybe they just like heard in passing about it 
or radio, radio, like radio is the largest form of like, you know, news at the time. So they might have heard him described or something. The only thing that hurts that is that he's described as like very, you know, memorably ugly. (laughs) And so like you'd think that that would be he's remarkable. Like he, yeah. he's average looking. So <laughs> who is the other? Know. Okay, so they also describe uh, Princess. How do you say it? Drag Dragomirov or uh, uh, the yeah Natalia the Drag Dragomirov. Yeah, they also go out of their way to say that she's ugly. And and it's and one thing from a writing perspective, I noticed that Agatha Christie. I I almost want to say gets away with as an author is like if I if I turned in a a, a novel to an agent today and. I described people as like they were ugly, they were, you know, or they looked tired as a again, this is not told from this is not a first person POV of the detective. This is a this is third person, right? So like if I turned in a work from a third person perspective and been like she was ugly, I will I guess I'll go ahead and throw this out there cuz we haven't done our JK Rowling shade yet this episode. JK Rowling does that a ton in her early works. But then, obviously, as the novels goes on, she learned to not do that. As we've pointed out in this podcast, she did not grow up with her audience. She learned how to write and then became a better author. That's been well established on this podcast. But that's beside the point. Um, there's no sense of jealousy in that in that uh, that sneak diss. But anyways, uh, it stuck out to me that as a, from an author's perspective, that she was able to say like just say she was ugly, and then kind of like go on from there. And and they do this yeah. a lot with all of the descriptions, just to be like, uh, it's a train station in Istanbul, right? They're snowed in. They're in a first class uh, box car, and you just kind of have to like piece together what you think that looks like. Which is it? Which again isn't necessarily bad. I'd almost rather you err on that than just going way out of your way for five pages describing what everything looks like. But it's just interesting to point out that she. Just called it as it is and just let you decide what that looks like, per se. Yeah, when I was a kid, I used to listen to a ton of, like, radio dramas from, like, this era. Like, The Shadow and, like, The Green Hornet and all those old radio plays. And it's very similar to that. Oh, yeah. As a kid, I was, like, super into that. I listened to it every night when I'd go to bed. What frequency did that play on? My grandpa got me into it. And then we still all listen to cassettes. And one year for Christmas, I got the entire series of The Shadow, like 20 years of this radio show on cassette tape. And I would just like listen to every single How one. many cassettes was, like, was that? It was one of those big like like polyurethane plastic pop cases. And it had probably 40 or 50 cassette tapes with like five or six episodes each. Wow. Okay. It was awesome. I was super into it. It got me really into listening to like audiobooks. That's how I got into Tom Clancy. Was then I got like I had seen The Hunt for Red October also at my grandpa's house and I got The Hunt for Red October and Rainbow Six on audiobook and I was already listening to a lot of like talk radio. I listened to talk radio a lot when I was a kid, WBAP in Dallas, uh Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh and like all who, that who shit. was the guy who was the guy that Sean Hannity had that like there was like the right and the left perspective on the Fox News channel. Oh, uh, Combs, Sean Combs, or uh, Alan Combs. So, he was just like the li- the so- liberal, be- the liberal whipping boy. They would he would just come on there and say like the dumbest shit they could think of, and he would just get dunked on professionally by Sean Hannity. Like that was. No, whole show. I was about to say the same thing, but also from like an editing perspective, every time that Combs is making a decent point, the camera and the noise would just cut over to Hannity and just let him dunk on him. It's like yeah. they used to have this. They used to have this show where it would be like 
Combs versus an entire panel of conservatives. It'd be like a dog pile format, and he would just get yelled down. This sucks so much ass, dude. The bag that that guy must have gotten. Oh, dude, yeah. He must have been just getting paid out the ass to just like take. He must have, and you know, he had friends. Like, he lived in New York. He's like a New York Jewish guy. He had like very progressive friends that, you know, worked at like the Times and shit. And they were like, why do you do this? And he's like, have you seen my Porsche? That's why I do yeah, this yeah. Talk. Like, <laughs> we're watching. Uh, we're, we're currently my, me and my wife are going back through. I, I've watched How I Met Your Mother all the way through. Which God, as a writer, I guess I'm admitting that I've watched an entire sitcom all the way through, which isn't very astute of that's, me. That's but a decent show. It gets really bad at the end, but it's it's it has its moments. It's got a shitty ending, but uh, Robin Trubotsky's is one of the like main characters, and she's going through like the news, like her career as a news anchor, and I just. I, I put myself in her position and then combs and just like, yeah, at a certain point you got to like, think about your, what you want with your career. And it's like, if you get offered the bag and you're just like, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to just be the whipping boy for like a few years and just get paid millions. Like whatever. Think about being like Skip Bayless, dude. Like you're just professionally the hot take dumb guy. That's your whole yeah. act is just like saying horrendous shit. That's clearly wrong about most subjects, but like, yeah, dude, he's hopping out of a Rolls Royce to go to work every day. So he could give a fuck. He's been doing it for 30 years. He made his name accusing Troy Aikman of being a closeted gay man in the nineties. He got run out of Dallas for that. It's like his, his first big claim to fame. Yeah, it is what it is, man. It's like every, some people, that's all they're there for. You know what I mean? Some people have a huge dream of like journalistic integrity, but like, yeah. I can go back and forth on Skip Bayless, but that's for another episode. Where were we at? But originally what I was saying was that in these old radio shows that came from this very same time, I do think, and this sounds super boomer as an opinion, there was just such a different method by which media and stories were delivered to people that I think that there was an allowance for imagination in the audience a lot more. Like, you, there's a ton more media where they give you the framework of the story, the actual narrative, like the character's dialogue and, like, what's happening, and then they allow you to kind of, like, what does this train car look like, you know? The shadow met him on top of a building and then they're talking and you have to, you know, in your head, you have to imagine like, which building is it? Is it raining? You know, like, is it dark? Like those, all those details are left up to you. Yeah. Yeah. There's a part of me that like understands that, but then I'm sitting there going like we talked about, again, I keep going back to the Da Vinci code, but the Da Vinci code would describe Paris as Oh, like as it is, overly, yeah, like, but like to the opposite extreme, right? Like too much, almost. It, yeah, and like to the left, there's this building. To the right, there's this building. And I, my big complaint with that is like, man, use moments where you want to slow down the pace as yeah. a time to point out what the vibe of the setting is like, and point out certain things in the background as a way to set the tone. And I think that if I'm going to be critical, that's something that Agatha Christie missed. Is like. There is one scene where somebody is thinking for a moment, he looks outside, and he looks at the snow. And I wish they had done more of that. It would have been so easy yeah. to talk about the plushness of the train car versus the the red blood of the stained murder and to like right, and then a sure. point to like how there was like snow on the outside and how that kind of alludes to like they're kind of in this insular chamber drama murder and then on the outside everything is white like it's such an easy yeah for sure metaphor imagery to like point out different things and to use that spare again sparingly but see by having that thought sam you did it yourself she let she left that up to you you met you drew that parallel well, without okay, her needing me, to write it no 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 only because again 
I, I was actually going to make a point about this only because I had uh, a few years ago had seen some of the other films that again have slightly different endings, right? As I was reading this book, I actually thought to myself, if I wasn't paying attention on certain pages, I could have not understood where they were. I'm going to be honest, like as I read this book, I remember thinking to myself, I could have read this book without seeing the movies or the or the film adaptation on uh the masterpiece what is it called the pbs like masterpiece with anyways i forget what masterpiece classic or whatever they call it where yeah i could have not understood that they were at a standstill i could have thought that they were still going like it was that left up to the imagination where i didn't even realize they were snowed in it wasn't until i watched again just like reading it they only reference like once or twice like that they're at a stop and then they're surrounded by snow or things like that so right yeah, no, it's it's definitely a, a sparse, like we said at the beginning, 256 pages for something this dense in action and, like, direction is, is pretty right. crazy. Um, incredibly bare bones. So, at this point, uh, Poirot, we're, he's kind of chasing these, like, MacGuffins, right? These several big items of evidence that the reader is probably like, okay, if we can find these, we can figure this out. And it's like the red kimono, the murder weapon, the train uniform, the train line uniform that supposedly the murderer was wearing when he bumped into someone in the hallway. And then they start doing a bag search. And immediately they find the red kimono, which is with Poirot's luggage. Hubbard finds the murder weapon in her sponge bag. uh, And they also find the train uniform. So like, immediately all the evidence that we're looking for, all the hard evidence is kind of thrown out the window. And so with that, Poirot meets with uh, Dr. Constantine and Boose, and they review the case, they develop this list of questions, and then Poirot does his, like, uh, effectively uh, Vulcan mind meld. He sits down, goes into a trance-like stake, and when he comes out of that trance, he has deduced the solution. He calls in everybody, he reveals all their true identities, and how they were all connected to the Armstrong tragedy. He gathers them in the dining car for the second solution. Um, So the Countess, uh, Adriani, is Helena, uh, Daisy's aunt, who was a child herself at the time of the tragedy. Rudolph, her loving husband, smudged her luggage label and obscured her name to conceal her identity. Debenham was Helena and Daisy's governess. Foscarelli was Armstrong's chauffeur and a suspect in the kidnapping. Masterman was uh, Colonel Armstrong's valet. The conductor was Susan's father and the person who produced the false second uniform. Hubbard is actually famous actress Linda Arden, Daisy's grandmother, and Sonia and Helena's mother. Schmidt was Armstrong's cook. Olsen was Daisy's nurse. Princess Dragomirov, uh, in reality, is Sonia's grandmother. And the monogrammed handkerchief, which they thought was an H on the handkerchief, is actually a Cyrillic letter N. Which I thought was uh, dope. I thought that was yeah, actually... Yeah, that's, that's, like, cool, that's a sweet detail. That's a great one right there. Yeah. Uh, Arthbanot is there on Debenham's behalf and his own as he was personal friends with Colonel Armstrong. Hardman is an ex-police officer who admits he was in love with Susan and McQueen who had feelings for Sonia, was the son of the lawyer who represented the Armstrongs. The only passengers not involved with the murder are the two that he just met with for the ca- to discuss the case. So his personal friend, Boos, and uh, Dr. Stavros Constantine, both having slept in the other coach, which was locked, so they can't be suspects. So Perot then, he, he kind of lays out two possible solutions. The first is that a stranger boarded the train when it was stopped, killed Cassetti, as a result of a mafia feud, because he was, like, in the outfit, 
in Chicago. Because he's Italian, and uh, exactly. we all know Italians are Italians always do love to kill each other. each other. Exactly. And then pieced out at great risk through the snow. The second is that all the clues except the handkerchief and pipe cleaner were planted and that the conductor and all the passengers in coach except Helena stabbed Cassetti acting on their as their own jury. So he has 12 stab wounds or 12 members of a jury. Arden admits that the second solution is correct, but offers to take responsibility as she was the mastermind of this plan. In response, Boos and Constantine accept the first solution and relay this to the police to protect the passengers and the conductor and avert a scandal. And Poirot is like, fuck y'all, and pieces out. He kind of did the right thing. One one thing we kind of glossed over in this story is the fact that when you're doing these interviews and stuff, you learn just what a bag of shit ratchet is and so by the end of the novel you're oh, just yeah. like man this guy kind of deserved to die 100 percent. the ending of this is that you are left with this question of like was justice done this man clearly deserved justice right like he did a terrible crime he was judged by a group of 12 peers as if it were a jury it's relayed to us that he got off by technical by legal technicality and shouldn't have gone free he was killed in a very ritualistic way by these 12 people as if they were a jury, but the people that are responsible for that extrajudicial killing are not given justice. It's attributed to a random assassin. I think the ending of the novel is dope. And I would imagine as a writer that how cool the novel's ending is in comparison to like how they get there leads me to believe that Agatha Christie probably thought about the ending. I was just going to say this, that she like definitely thought of how dope the ending would be. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then let me me make a novel that's about that. On like the last day before this went to the editor, she was like, okay, how do I get him on the train? (laughs) How does, how does Poirot get on the train? (laughs) No kidding. No kidding. Because earlier in the novel you are, the more you're just like, okay, man. And then towards the end of the novel, you're like, okay, this is this. But dude, how many times has this, format been done you know what i mean like knives out clue you know what i mean like this idea of like someone is murdered we know it was someone here untangling the web of how it happened is become like a hallmark of the murder mystery you know the whodunit is like that's a that's a a meme you know a real uh, a a cultural meme as it were yeah Um, and i'll and i'll say this that that to me is such a I want to say like obvious story to make that like, okay, there's an idea of like one night, 10 people, 12 people all in the same area. Someone died. Who did it? I think that I, again, I don't know if there was novels well before this that came before Agatha Christie that were like similar in nature, but something tells me that like if Agatha Christie hadn't written this novel, something very similar to it would have been written very sim like, very closely afterwards this would have not it would have not gone very long in the history of well-written literature that a novel would have been written where there's like a i almost call it like a chamber drama murder mystery we're like all right there's 14 of us there's 10 of us we none of us left the room who did it right that's in in the way in which people think about things i think it eventually would have been done if that makes any sense agreed agreed i this is an interesting note so she wrote the beginning uh agatha christie wrote the beginning of this novel at the baron hotel uh in aleppo it's the one of the oldest hotels that uh, has ever been operating in the middle east it was built for people going on pilgrimages to jerusalem back in like the late 19th century and agatha christie wrote murder on the orient express there in room 203 Lawrence of Arabia slept in room 202. 
what do you the mean presidential. Oh, the the actual okay. The yeah, actual the real guy. Lawrence yeah, okay. yeah. The actual Lawrence of Arabia. Wow. Uh, presidential. The presidential suite was occupied by King Faisal, the original king of Saudi Arabia. It was then occupied by Charles de Gaulle when he was president of France. Wow. King Gustav the Sixth of Sweden, Egypt's uh, Gamal Nasir, who was like probably the greatest Egyptian president ever who was bringing, you know, democracy and secular democracy to Egypt and then was assassinated. Syria's former president, Hafiz al-Assad, Sheikh Zayed bin Sultan al-Nayen, the founder of the United Arab Emirates, American billionaire David Rockefeller, uh, Julie Christie, Mr. and Mrs. Theodore Roosevelt, uh, Charles Lindbergh, and Yuri wow. Gagarin, the first man in space. So Charles that Lindbergh. one floor, the, the second floor of the Baron Hotel has played host to like some of history's greatest characters and this novelist who borrowed from another guest who stayed there's life story to write her masterpiece, which is super cool. Charles That's amazing. Lindbergh, yeah. I was waiting for you to like get into the modern times and just be like, Jake Paul, TikTok star, uh, Charlie D'Amelio. <laughs> Kygo played there last Wednesday. Uh, it was a six set. Uh. <laughs> Gary V was there the other week. Uh, <laughs> Gary V's hosting an NFT conference in this hotel next week in Aleppo. <laughs> I got to say something totally off track since we haven't done a uh, George Rockall Schmidt plug in a while. Um, Dude, he's been slacking. YouTuber, he's not doing new videos. He's, he's holding up on us, man. He knows we're waiting. He knows we're chomping at the bit. It's his way of getting us to subscribe so we can hear the latest of George Rockall Schmidt complaining. The guy that I want that I, I've talked about lately is like, man, have you seen some of the videos that uh, Bald and Broke has done? Or Broken Bald, I forget which order it is. This is the guy that, okay, this guy from England always wears crazy neon sunglasses and just like walks around countries and cities that in no way shape or form you think you should ever go to this dude literally marched around the border of ukraine right before war war broke so he's out. like a he's like a he's like a chaos tourist like a war tourist effectively he's like oh rwanda lit like <laughs> yeah i mean effectively that's how it t- turns out but in a but like it's so much more than that you just have to watch like because he did an episode okay. on, on syria where he was pretty much like Hey, we're going to go tour Syria. We're going to go to Damascus. We're going to go to uh, parts of Aleppo. We're going to go to other areas. We're obviously going to avoid the areas that are still controlled by rebels and ISIS and all that. But we're going to show you that Syria is a big-ass country and that it's a lot more than just war. And he does a really good job of that. Um, So highly, highly recommend. uh, Again, I I don't remember off the top of my head if it's bald and broke or broke and bald, but it's one of the two. If you, if you search it, the guy's got millions of views. Look it up. Highly recommend it. Is it bald and bankrupt? Yeah. What did I say? Bald and broke. Yeah. Bald and bankrupt. This guy, he's got millions of views. It's hard to miss. I just, I just opened the, the front page and his top video on the front page is looking for a drink in deepest Siberia. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. That sounds rad, dude. But he goes to Aleppo. There's like a few videos of that. Um, God, it's so cool. Like, you know, this Andy, like I'm huge into travel and there's that, there is, uh, there are episodes of that that literally make me be like, damn, I wonder if like I could go to Syria. He goes to places where you're like, it's, it's just got incredible historical architecture and things like that. There's some like really well-preserved castles and things like that. Shouts out to Syria for being underrated. And I'm going to finish this tangent by just saying this, like there is a direct tie to 
where people go as tourists and places that are willing and able to spend money on tourism. Um, right. I think I've talked to you about this offline about like, dude, about how the Colosseum in Rome for half a millennia was neglected, used as like a place to grow plants and things like that. And then, and then, and then like in the 1900s, Italy was like, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to invest in this and like put a huge advertising marketing campaign into being a tourist destination. When in reality you can go to Italy, Southern Italy, you can go to uh, Libya and you can go see like significantly more, I guess I should say well-preserved Roman features Colosseum. Yeah, but are those, have they made Lego? Have they made Lego sets out of those? Probably not. Um, All right then, sounds whack, dude. Keep that broke boy shit to yourself. Thanks. Yeah, there's a city in France called Ninem. Ninem. It starts with an M, and I can't remember the name okay. of it off the top of my head. But it's in Provence. And uh, shout out to myself for being able to pronounce Pro- Provence, but then not the city that I'm referring to. Um, but it's where they invented denim. And they've got a crazy badass Colosseum that's like more well preserved than the Roman Colosseum, and that kind of proves my point. It's just like, dude, there's so many places out there that just like have really cool places to visit, but it's just kind of a shame that they're not able to like spend the money on tourism. But then, obviously, in the case of Siberia and uh, Libya, like it's probably not safe to visit there per se. So yeah, at least not for now. And that's one of the great yeah. tragedies of the geopolitical instability of the Middle East is that like, it is definitely like, it's the cradle of civilization. It's where humanity as we know it really the earliest forms of recorded history are all there. And every major, you know, culture, religion, et cetera, you know, traces their lineage back to like this relatively small area of the world. And a lot of it is currently kind of inaccessible to anyone who isn't like kind of willing to take their life into their own hands because, of just like, unfortunately, I really kind of wish that like the oil was somewhere else. I feel like things might have gone differently if like if all the oil was in Antarctica, we might not. Uh, it might be easier to go see a lot of the cool places in the Middle yeah, East. Yeah, man, and I and I go like my buddies. He he went to Morocco and yeah. he said the same thing. Like, if danger was not a thing somehow, Morocco would be one of the most visited places on Earth. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it's my, got so my old much roommate cool was from Algeria. Same thing. He's just like, it's fucking incredible. But if you're not like from there, it's like kind of low key, not a good idea. Yeah, Egypt, same thing. I had a one of my my actually my little in my fraternity uh, went to Egypt as part of his uh, honeymoon. Same thing. He went to Cairo. I think he went to like maybe Alexandria or Nairobi, Nairobi, one of the other places. And same thing. It's like, dude, how I would love to go to. Egypt for like Egypt is especially sad because Egypt was the cradle of Western style secular democracy in the Middle East and that was stamped out and Egypt is also the birthplace of like Wahhabi brand style radical fundamentalist Islam like the modern you know terrorism that we are associate with radical Islam was born in Egypt as well and so it's kind of like the center of like the entire arab world in a weird way even though it doesn't have mecca and it doesn't have you know those kind of holy sites it's been the site of these incredibly impactful moments in the history of the region and if it weren't for like a single you know assassination in the 60s like egypt might be as advanced as france today like they have the suez canal like they have a ton of trade they have a highly educated population but yeah, they've just had no end of trouble, unfortunately. 
picking a fight with the, the Israelis didn't help either. That doesn't help anyone's resume. Yeah, so we're we're done with this novel, right? We we, we yeah, that's up. the end of the, that's the end of this novel. Um, I guess my my final thoughts on this are just that like. I think it's a testament to just the lasting impact of this that it's been one, like we said, it's been done a hundred times in in film, but it's also been adapted into other cultures. Um, in 2015, Japanese television made a version of this where, like, they they said it in 1930s Japan on a train between. I'm not going to try to pronounce the city, but one of the outlying prefectures in Tokyo, and they get stuck in a mountain pass, and there's a murder on board the train, and there's a Japanese. They're all Japanese, like so. Like yeah. other cultures have like adopted this story it's become the basis for all the classic whodunits and while i think we've done a good job here kind of laying out how from a modern perspective it maybe lacks some of the bells and whistles that we would expect out of high level literature now for some reason this this simple relatively simple concept for a story has grabbed attention for almost a century and continues to be taught and read as one of the classics that effectively created a genre so that's really cool yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's hard for me from a modern perspective to read it and then personally not have having read a bunch of crime murder stories from, you know, around that era and maybe before that to understand truly how groundbreaking that is. Like from a music perspective, if you read if if you had never heard anything before the 70s and you listened to I want to hold your hand by the Beatles, you'd be like this shit sucks. But like, <laughs> how groundbreaking and great was that back then? And I'm not oh, uh, look. Course. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying that this novel is doesn't stand the test of time, or isn't still entertaining because it it definitely is, and you should definitely read it if you haven't read it. Um, which we've just stood on the we've stood on these shoulders, right? Like we've we've definitely like, used this as a as a launching point for more advanced methods of storytelling, and that's. I think that's obvious to any well-read person that reads this book, but I do think it's still really enjoyable. I I think yeah, I, I think down a better this is a good idea. I think a better music comparison would be like um, what is it? The Can't Help Falling in Love with You by by Elvis um, Presley. Rollin' by Limp Biscuit. That's up there as well, as well as any of Moby's songs that have no, <laughs> no lyrics. Um, Days go by and still I think of you. That yeah, like a like a Nissan car commercial song, or whatever that is. <laughs> That's all I think about, or or just the Jason Bourne theme theme that always plays the. Hell yeah! <laughs> That's Moby. So shouts out to Moby for giving us that, and then pretending like you weren't complicit in Woodstock '99. You son of a bitch. <laughs> Sam will never allow a Moby to escape blame for Woodstock '99. <laughs> Dude, it's, it's just the fact that he like this dude literally performed at Woodstock and then gets has the gall to get on the documentary and be like, yeah, I I don't know, I wasn't part of that. These people wanted to go crazy, but I just I don't know, man. I wasn't really I, there. I, okay, I'll I'll give I'll give him this much credit. I can totally wrap my head around the concept of showing up to a place you've been contractually obligated to perform and being like, this seems bad. I I can't get out of it because I've signed to play here, but I don't like the vibe. So let's perform and, and dip. I, I could see that. I don't know if that's what happened, but like that doesn't seem preposterous to me. That's fair. That's fair. I'll leave it at that. That's fair. There's also part of me that like that mirrors that with the fact that he got in front of a camera in a documentary and then just like of course use it as yeah, a that, use that it as a help. platform <laughs> to just like it politically expels a bunch of things. Yeah. Anyways. Uh, ratings, dude. What do you, what do you do? What did you put this out? This is so tough. I wish I hadn't 
viewed any I wish I'd read this book in a vacuum and did hadn't seen any of the like movie adaptations because they all blend together in my head it's like the concept of murder on the Orient Express is being rated here rather than this novel because I now that I've seen movies and stuff I can't take the visuals and stuff out of my head you know when I'm reading the book yeah, and you also you also read this in like the 2020s, and this was meant for. It truly was like, let's be honest. Like when you create a piece of artwork, like especially literature, like it's meant for the audience that you produce it for. This was written in the 30s, so like you have to kind of like scale it a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a solid eight and a half. I think it's th- a thoroughly enjoyable chamber drama with a huge, complicated cast that's handled well with a very satisfying conclusion that I really loved. And I could totally see myself reading, you know, Death on the Nile or one of those. I think that's, they're cool. I am definitely scaling it, like, to meet my modern expectations a little bit. Uh, but I'm sure at the time, though, this was a fucking banger. Like, <laughs> given oh, what yeah, they were yeah. reading, like, this shit probably yeah. slapped. So I'm going to say 8.5. I'm going to give it 7.8 I for basically the exact same reasons. I think it... It hits all the notes. I think it's it's entertaining, and I talked a little bit about my gripes with it. From I think it missed a few opportunities to really be a total banger. You know, it doesn't give you opportunities to guess the twists and turns, of which mm-hmm. there are many. But at the same time, it does give you windows into, like, probably too early on to guess, like, oh, there's something really amiss here, and it's probably, like, eight or nine people involved, which is the truth. It ended yeah. up being, like, how many people do we say were involved? Like, basically all of them that's really what i meant it's what i meant was like when i was reading it i was like man based on the fact that these people are kind of like randomly involved with this one murder case that happened five thousand miles away i bet that uh most of them are probably connected to this somehow and they were so yeah while i will kind of nitpick at like the randomness of the reveals kind of like death note it almost simultaneously reveals you a little bit too early what the twist is but it's it's it is a really fun read. Um, it is. It's very tight. I like the characters, dude. We didn't really talk about this as much as we we were dissing the the portrayals of the different nationalities. I will say that I liked how every character was a totally different person. It's kind of like Clue, yeah, for sure. Where like they're all so different. Where like you talked about how there's there's so many different people in this novel that have different backgrounds and stuff, but the fact that they all are so different in their personality and their mannerisms, it kind of helps you keep track of it, which I thought was and, really cool. And she kind of wrote two characters for each character. You know what I mean? Cause there's like who they're portraying and then who they really are. And so like, yeah. she kind of had, to, I mean, that's incredibly impressive. That means she wrote like 30 three dimensional characters for this 256 page novel. I mean, if you've gotten this far, you've probably already read it or you're probably, you know, maybe have watched the movies and stuff. But, you know, I guess I would say if anybody hasn't read this or maybe you want to recommend it, I would say like this. This is a recommendable novel. I, you know, I yeah. keep comparing it to Da Vinci Code. I could see where most people wouldn't like Da Vinci Code. I think this is a step above Da Vinci Code. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think this is like a certified classic and the Da Vinci Code was like a pop culture phenomenon that I yeah. can't really imagine being remembered like super fondly outside of just like oh yeah we all read this like 50 years from now cool just wanted to make sure you uh you agreed but one more thing i wanted to add and i didn't really have a place to to insert this but one thing that i i was reading about agatha christie's uh biography and she wrote like and i don't have the number in front of me and you may can you fact check this for me if you've got it pulled up i think she wrote like 50 perot novels or 
Poirot, or I keep saying his name wrong. I'm so sorry. Poirot. Poirot. She wrote a ton of Poirot novels, including uh, thirty-one novel. of her novels and fifty short stories. Yeah, so there you go. Poirot was a was a big deal in her life. And one thing that I thought was really cool is like I think a year before she passed away, she wrote her last Poirot novel, and it's just called Curtain, which Tight. is just dope. It's just in a That's vacuum. Fire. That sounds sick. Yeah, and uh, Poirot was the first fictional character to ever get an obituary in the New York Times, which happened right which before is, the publication of Curtain, which is bad. that's that's certified hood classic status. Right that now. is a really cool story. But one thing I read was that she had said in an interview, and had kind of like doubled down on this multiple times around the time that she wrote Murderer on the Orient Express, or slightly before it, that she found Poirot annoying. And then went on to say a few years later that she was like sick as fuck as writing about him. So I could totally see that, dude. Like that could be depending on how you view that character, especially because he is described by her as like a total egoist. Like writing writing that kind of character could become incredibly frustrating after, I mean, thirty three novels and fifty short stories. That's crazy. That's a I insane guess, amount of writing. Okay. She wrote, and then there were none, right? Uh-huh. What year did she write that? 1943. Okay, so my take is this. If you're sick as, of writing Poirot in, like, the mid-30s or early 30s, and you've already written, like, two or three certified bangers with this dude, wrap his ass up and then just, yeah, like, get him keep killed. making bangers. Well, it's like, I, I guess from a, like, creative perspective, it's like, if I'm ever sick of writing a story, I'm going to be like, I'm okay. I'm going to, I'm going to finish this story and then move on. And I, and I, and I, again, I'm saying the perspective of like an amateur writer, whereas she's probably getting the bag and she's writing all these. I was going to say, let me, the- let me give you a comparable, uh, creative, uh, career. Hido Kojima, the, you know, goat of video game narrative, uh, creator of Metal Gear Solid. You know, he was, after making three Metal Gear Solids, he was like, I'm done with this. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. And they were just like, oh, we'll give you, like, a bajillion dollars to write us three more games. You know, like, we have an action figure line. We have a movie deal. We have all this shit. This exact same discussion took place around that. And he said, fuck that, and left, created his own company, gave, wrote, like, lost the rights to all his life's work, and created a new game called Death Stranding, which was, like, very controversial. But... The idea of walking away from like surefire money and adulation for this masterpiece you've already created and all you have to do is just kind of rehash it over and over again to revel in your own glory is very difficult for people. It's all they've ever known. Yeah. You know what I mean? To that point, I'm gonna look up uh I'm gonna look up her estate's net worth just to see if it was worth the bag. Forty million pounds? That's pretty deep. It's yeah, not that, as, that'll yeah, do. That's pretty deep. This is tight. According to crime writer PD James Christie was prone to making the unlikeliest character the guilty party. Alert readers could sometimes identify the culprit by identifying the least likely suspect. Christie mocked this insight in the foreword to Cards on the Table. Spot the person least likely to have committed the crime, and in nine times out of ten, your task is finished. Since I do not want my faithful readers to fling away this book in disgust, I prefer to warn them beforehand that this is not that kind of book. That's super tight. That's a 1940s flex for sure. That is sick. She she did a um, flat back in the foreword of her own novel. That's sick. One thing that maybe this is jealousy speaking as an author, but I think this is Bush League is her estate gave effectively rights for a person like again thirty years after I, I guess more like forty five years 
after Agatha Christie passed away, they gave uh, this this author named Sophie Hanna the rights to write more Poirot novels. Oh fuck off! So, fuck yeah, off. so 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 Sophie <laughs> Hanna no, wrote no, a few zero novels. interest. <laughs> yeah, I know, and I'm the same way. But so, this this lady named Sophie Hanna wrote these novels. She wrote four novels between uh, 2014 and 2020 that are about Poirot. And I'm I I am a thousand percent the same way. I'm like the estate giving this person rights to write more Poirot novels. And look, I'll, I'll just I'll just say this: like I don't know the inner workings of like did Agatha Christie give her kids or her grandparents like or sorry her grandkids rights to say down the line somebody could pick up this work. I I would say it's unlikely given that she killed off the character, but. Well, and it's not like a, it's not a Tom Clancy situation where like towards the end of his life, he was like writing with co-writers and like, Hey, you can continue this character of Mark Grenier. You know what I mean? Right. It's not a Robert Jordan. It's not Robert Jordan, Brandon Sanderson, where she like brought him on and then like said, Hey, I'm passing away. Here is what I'm writing. Help me write it and then continue on my legacy. This is their estate saying 40 years later, Hey, go chase the bag with these account getting kind of account getting kind of short. (laughs) <laughs> could use some yeah. more of that Poirot money. <laughs> like, yeah, it's frustrating. So, anyways, that's whack, dude. That's whack. Art is all art is corrupted by money. Everyone, go read the Basquiat doc or the Basquiat biography and grow a healthy disgust for the presence of money and creativity. I don't know what that means, but that's a good reference. We we've recommended like eight things on this podcast, none of which are me saying, "Hey, like and subscribe and follow us and tell two friends," which you should do anyways. Yeah, your two homework assignments are to like and subscribe, tell two friends, and to stand in awe in front of a Basquiat painting until you feel your mind begin to slip. And to follow Baldwin Bankrupt and go watch him walk. I'm about to do that, dude. I'm hours. pretty stoked to watch this guy's videos. Thank you for the rec. It's dope. Anyways, as I said. If you liked what you heard, like and subscribe. Give us a rating. Give us a follow. Whatever it is that you you wherever you heard this podcast, and uh, tell two friends because that's the most important thing. We want to get the word out. As always, this is Novel Discourse. I'm Sam. I'm Andy. We'll see you next time. Peace. Peace.